Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Um, I'm going to read Genesis 3. Uh, This is what's classically called the fall in Scripture, like where man rebels against God and things start to fall apart. And it actually addresses work very quickly uh, in this passage. So we're just going to read a selection of verses from there and then some stuff from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and we'll talk about it. Now the servant was more crafty than other wild, any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, and he was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. A couple of verses later, To Adam, God said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now the ground is his place of work. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Proverbs uh, 23, 4, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. From Ecclesiastes, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, his work... Is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Also from Ecclesiastes. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is a vanity and striving after win. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is one handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the win. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other. No son or brother, yet there's no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is a vanity and an unhappy business. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. (coughs) Jesus, teach us. Let us sit under your word. Let us be frustrated and confronted um, in our hearts with the way that we relate to work, and let us see that there is hope. Help us to long for something better something clearer, something more beautiful. Um, Be with us now. We need you to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, To begin again, I want to go over last week really briefly, but before we even do that, uh, I want to define what I mean by work. And uh, because it is more than simply our schoolwork. Uh, It's much broader than that. And so here's kind of a big definition from work, and I'll I'll tease it out for a second. Uh, The way Pastor Tim Keller defines it is taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of others. So that's a big definition. Taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of others. But I want to tease that out for a second. So taking the raw materials of creation, what does that mean? Well, the raw materials of creation is not just physical stuff. It's not just dirt. It's not just rocks. It's it's not just... um, those kinds of things. It's both stuff as well as time 
as well as abilities, as well as ideas. So taking all of those things, stuff, time, abilities, ideas, and developing, developing means creating new things or refining old things. So developing means to create new things or refine old things. And then lastly, for the sake of others. For the sake of other means this. It means towards beauty and justice. Beauty means that you develop stuff and make something so that others delight in it. And that can be everything from a garden, to writing a story, to making an app, to building a parking structure. This encompasses, this is a very broad definition. So, for the sake of others means cultivating beauty or cultivating justice. Beauty means that you take stuff and make something beautiful or something others delight in. Justice means you find something wrong and you make it right. So, diagnosing, prescribing health care, educating, writing good policy. Again, these definitions, I want you to interpret them as broadly as possible. That's what they're intended for. But then this is what we said last week, that work is for the purpose of it or ways of comprehending it. The, the delight and the meaning of work, its purpose, uh, and, and I can't be comprehensive in this, but these two categories I hope to capture, capture a lot of big ideas. As we said, the main thing work is, is imaging and serving. Imaging and serving. So what does imaging mean? Well, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, God gives the command to man, first command he gives him, is have dominion, subdue the earth, work it. And in the midst of that command... He over and over again says, we've made God in our image, let us make God in our own image, and image in the image of God, he's made man. So you have this story of God crafting and making beautiful things, connecting it to the idea that we were made in his image, and then giving us a command to do the same. So they're all bound up together. So one of the ways we talked about work is it's, to work is to image God. That means to do what he did because you're made in his image. God's a worker. We see him crafting beauty in Genesis, and we see him crafting beauty and justice throughout all of his work. So the work is to image him, and the delight of imaging him is not simply in work done well. It's both in the work done well and the work as honoring or imitating your father. To work is to be in the family business. By way of example, here's what I mean, that, that imaging is more than simply imitating, it's also connecting with your Heavenly Father, is if you grew up the son of a state farm agent and then bought and sold frozen pizzas, and you bought and sold frozen pizzas in elegant ways where you created a competitive economy and fair wages for other people and distributed types of pizza, that's a good thing, right? That's not what my brother does. My brother buys and sells frozen pizzas. He creates economy, does it at a fair wage, distributes tasty frozen pizza, but guess what he is? He's the son of of a frozen pizza purchaser. So he's in his father's business. He's imaging him in a more distinct way. Does that make sense? All of work is actually to be in the father's business. God's business is developing, bringing beauty and justice to all of creation. So anything you do that is like that, whether it's a clever design in the top of a latte, or it's developing blockchain technology for financial transactions, all of that's the family business. It's both beautiful and valuable because they image the creativity of your father. Work is imaging. Work is also serving. Work is not done for me. But it actually falls under the umbrella of the overall biblical governing structure of all of life, which is love God and love your neighbor. It serves that end. 
the deeper happiness that's available in work doesn't come when you seek your happiness in the work, but actually in using your work to honor God and to serve your fellow humans. And it's actually the serving and loving heart with which you work that's far more important to look for than finding the field that allows you to fulfill your passions. Uh, The most rewarding work I do every week, I am absolutely not passionate about. In fact, I I don't like. Uh, I would prefer not to do it. Uh, It doesn't utilize any of the ways I'm gifted at all. Uh, I don't enjoy it. However, all those things are true, as well as it's true that it's the most rewarding work I do every week. It's the only work that I do every week, and sometimes Elizabeth, we, we do this work about half and half, maybe she does it 60, I do it 40. It's the only work either one of us does each week that about half the time we dance in celebration because the work is done. Yet we're not passionate about it and not gifted for it and don't want to do it. It's taking out the three garbage cans on Monday night at 10 p.m. First of all, I don't know why we have three garbage cans like California. Let's get it together. Like back in Alabama, you just put it all in one garbage can. I think they burn it all. But secondly, we always forget and have to do it at 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night because they come at like 5 a.m. Here's the thing. Here's why actual dance happens in the Wood household when we complete work that we're not passionate about and doesn't utilize our skills. It's because we do it for someone we love. It's probably a good sign that you're recovering the original design for work when you're finding yourself doing something you're not passionate about, but doing it for someone you love. (coughs) That's serving. Imaging and serving. But here's what we're going to talk about this week. Because that's idealistic and it sounds great. Right? But things don't turn out to be that simple in our day-to-day lives, and work has gotten really complicated, and it's shot through with frustration and with brokenness. And so what we're going to do for the rest of the night is diagnose the problem, uh, do kind of observe the symptoms of the problem, and then talk about the pathology of it, why it's broken. So how you know it's broken, and why it's broken. Um, and then next week, we'll talk about theology and practices for, for healing our relationship with work. So how do you know? I'm just going to go through a list of symptoms. How do you know that our relationship with work is broken? First, do you think or feel as if you are only valuable, worthy, or validated if you achieve a certain cultural or personal threshold of success, right? You have this thing, this threshold. And if you don't meet that threshold, and it's either set by you or by your surrounding culture, you doubt your own sense of worth. You don't feel valid as a person. Now, why is that problematic? Why does that indicate that we have a dysfunctional relationship with work? Here's something, if nothing else, if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure where you are, if you're skeptical, if nothing else, take this home with you tonight. This is true for everybody. If you are not productive tomorrow, you're valuable. That sounds really easy to believe, but I don't think many of us believe it. Do you know that if you're not productive tomorrow, you're valuable? Productivity is not the measure of man. That's a lie. 
believing that lie is wildly destructive to your sense of self, and it's also destructive to how we think about other people. The biblical view is actually that you are valuable as a person for the same reason a Van Gogh painting is valuable. Why is a Van Gogh painting valuable? Because Vincent Van Gogh painted it. It's valuable because of the fame and the renown of the maker. His made things have inherent value because of who he is. You have inherent value because of who made you. Because you're made in God's image. Psalm 8 celebrates this. The psalmist says, When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've ordained, what is man that you think so much of him? He marvels at the bigness and the beauty of the universe for the purpose of saying, Oh my gosh, and you even care about man even more. The Son of Man, you care for Him. You've made Him just a little bit lower than God and you crown Him with glory and majesty. Can your work cause self-loathing for you? Then something's broken. Does work cause self-condemnation for you? Do you believe that you're a failure as a person if you don't attain a certain threshold of what either you or your surrounding community call success? If that's true then it's not work that we value, but rather the false promise from work that it's going to make us feel okay with ourselves. And work can't do that. If any undergraduate students in the world today should be able to feel okay with themselves because of their level of achievement, it's Stanford students. Do we feel okay with ourselves? We're still trying to figure it out. But here's the thing. Secondly... The means by which we value ourselves also become the means by which we value others. That's always true. So when we question our self-worth and our value because of our work, we also question other people's value and worth because of their work. Do you stratify people? Do you judge people or dignify people according to their work? That's another symptom that something's broken. Have you ever thought, met somebody at Stanford who wanted to become a third grade teacher or a nurse, and you thought, that's a waste. Can you be friends with, or your, will your group of friends welcome someone who not only doesn't achieve, not only they don't achieve, they don't even aspire to achieve what you call success. James says in his letter, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothes and say, Come and sit in the good place, and tell the poor man, Stand over there, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's contextualize it. If a VC and a service worker came in here tonight, who would we gravitate toward? Who would you dignify with friendliness? More so, who would you consider a possibility for friendship? If we actually value people according to perceived prestige of vocation, then we have set up a structure of oppression. And it's not based on race, religion, some of the other structures of oppression, but rather it's based on education and success. Work has become the means by which we stratify society. And when God's people are described in Revelation as a multitude from every nation and every tribe and every tongue, it's clear that in the context of the rest of the New Testament, 
that not only does the gospel of Jesus view race and ethnicity and restore dignity to all nations and races, but it's also appropriate to import Paul's warnings about socioeconomic divisions into that image, that the church is a place that refuses to be a community that stratifies according to vocation or according to economic status. And the reason why? It's because all people are equally valuable by, being, by virtue of being made in God's image, by be, virtue of being His handiwork. Not only that, all work is valuable. Not because a certain capitalistic economy recognizes it or compensates for more, but all expressions of creativity and service are valuable in that you are imaging your Father and serving His people. That's the value of it. Some of us in this room are actually afraid to do amazing, beautiful things that you're incredibly gifted for because it doesn't pay as much. And it's not celebrated by our economy. And Jesus' love, you are free to go and do those things. That is not your value. Whether or not this economy values it is not what makes it valuable. And there's probably more joy available in that than there is in the big paycheck you're sending. Do we value ourselves according to work? Do we value others according to work? Third symptom, does fear drive you? The command given in Scripture more than any other command is do not fear. The way to express and experience your humanity in its fullest form is to be someone who's driven by love for others and trust in God's love for you. For those to be your orienting, driving forces. Do you work trusting that you're loved? Do you work because you delighted it as an outlet for love? Or do we work because we're afraid? Afraid of falling behind, afraid of what others will think, afraid of the consequences of failure, afraid of who we would be if we didn't? Does work have the capacity to humiliate you? To destroy you? Then something's wrong. If we value ourselves according to work, value others according to their work, if fear drives us, if money drives us, do not toil to acquire wealth, be wise enough to desist. Listen, compensation is not a bad thing. But to value work only according to its compensation actually means that we don't value the work itself or don't understand it. Elsewhere in the Proverbs it says wealth is here and it's gone tomorrow. But here's what's interesting about Jesus' ministry is the sin that he warns against the most is greed. He warns him against that sin more than any other sin. And the reason why is because none of us can see that sin operating in us. It's the one we don't feel. It'll always feel reasonable to want more and to make decisions optimizing for more. Here's an amazing thing. These people exist. You know them. Some of you are them. You know they're incredibly talented people who could make a ton of money, who could make loads more money than they're currently making, but they took a low-paying job. Do you know those people exist in this world? It's important to spend time with those people. If you know them, if you are them. The reason why is because they've found in their line of work something more valuable than money. 
They know they can make more. They choose not to. They've found something more valuable. Spend time with those people. Optimizing work for money is a concession that you found no good reason to work and so only rely on something as crass as a big paycheck to labor. Here's the other thing about optimizing work for money, saying money's the thing, right? So we optimize all of our work decisions toward that. That always leads to economic injustice. When compensation and profits are the things that we optimize everything for, when you don't have something higher, again, these things are not bad, they're just bad kings. When you don't have something higher above that, that actually limits and directs how and when you optimize for profit and for compensation, you will always end up creating injustice. This is what happened in the subprime mortgage crisis. Bankers had no concern for people, but optimized for profit. So they gave loans to people that didn't need to take these loans and couldn't afford these loans that were structured in a way that would take advantage of them later. Then they chopped up these loans, disguised them as a healthier financial instrument than they actually were, and then sold them to a bunch of banks over and over and over again. Until everybody started defaulting on these loans. People lost their homes. All the, all the banks and investments that invested in these loans were people's, were big organizations' retirement funds. And so now you took homes and you took retirement funds from huge swaths of the U.S. population. Why? Because they optimize for profit. We create economic injustice when we do that. That's the tragic irony of it. There's got to be something more. Does money drive you? Here's the next one. Uh, does work inhibit or adversely affect relationships. Uh, I've recently been reading this book on what we've called, what you've probably heard of, the seven deadly sins, this Roman Catholic doctrine that there are these seven capital sins, which means they're the sins from which all the other sins spring. And the sin of sloth is, was really interesting to read about because it's not about laziness. The sin of sloth is not about what I normally thought it was, what probably most of you think it's about. It's not about a lack of diligence in work. It's actually about a lack of diligence in love. And you can avoid loving people by watching Netflix all day, but you can avoid loving people by being busy all day. It actually, the sin of sloth, addresses doing nothing and doing too much to not be a good friend. And that's certainly the way that we manifest the sin of sloth here. And that's what, in Ecclesiastes 4, that's what the writer's talking about when he says, there was a man all alone who had neither son nor brother, and there was no end to his toil, and his eyes were not content with his wealth. And then he realized, for who am I toiling, and why am I depriving myself of pleasure? This is meaningless. Is work getting in the way of being a friend? Of having friends? Are you so busy that you can't be a friend to those who needs you, then our relationship with work is broken. Is work actually, (laughs) next one, is work actually physically and psychologically killing us? Most of you in this room already know someone at Stanford who's been chewed up and spit out. And freshmen, if you don't know someone, you will. Some of us have been those people. And not only do I think we should, I think not only should we not think less of those people, it might be that they're the most healthy people here because they sensed and saw something is not right with this addiction to achievement. 
your body and your mind might be telling you something's wrong. Are you willing to listen? Those people who leave might be the canaries in the coal mine. You know what a canary in a coal mine is? When they bring these birds in the coal mine and they would be harmed or die first and that's how they know there was toxicity in the air. Those people might be telling us something. That there is a toxic element to the way we're addicted to achievement here. Let me draw a distinction on that for a little bit. Jesus actually does give us a model of suffering and trial as loving service, doesn't he? The cross is our model. But what it is, is it's a pouring out of his life for those he loves. There is a form of suffering that comes because you're seeking to bring justice and seeking to love and seeking to restore people. But suffering for justice, and suffering for justice sake can be really painful, but it fills up your heart because it's done in love for the other. Suffering for self-justification is something altogether different, and it will empty you and empty you of your humanity. Is your body, your mind telling you something's wrong? Lastly, do you stop? The question is not, can you stop? Every addict says, I can stop when I want to. That's not the question. The question is, do you? The question is not, do you stop when you're forced to? The question is, do you volunteer to stop? Not because the holidays come or because you have to sleep or in order to be more productive, but because work does not control you. You, as a human, are not primarily a laborer. There are additional pursuits that fill out your humanity. There are other ways you're supposed to experience joy besides just work. Do you stop regularly for fun? Uh, The famous director, Sidney Pollack, who died a couple of years ago at the end of his life remarked that work was wearing him out but he couldn't stop because he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped do you know why you can't stop you are more than your work work is a part of constructing a meaningful life it is that's what we talked about last week but work is not the meaning of life And our disorder with work comes from wrongly asking it to do something that it can't. Namely, that either work itself or the fruit of our work, compensation, save us. That's what we want. And the reason that it feels like, okay, if I really recalibrated my habits with regard to work, and if I really meaningfully restructured my relationship with work, that just feels impossible. Like, that's a non-negotiable. I can't afford to do that. The reason it feels like a non-negotiable is because whatever is your functional savior will always feel like a non-negotiable. Those are some symptoms. Briefly, pathology. How did we get this way? In Genesis 3, we have the account of what's called the fall. The fall refers to the relational transaction between God and man that broke our relationship with Him and then brokenness worked itself out in the world. In it, God gave Adam and Eve a prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I didn't read the whole passage. Some of y'all are familiar with it, but I'm giving you broad strokes. We're not going to go into all of it. We're going to hit the main couple of main principles. Understanding why this specific tree is, is not as important as understanding what's going on relationally between Adam and Eve and God. The question put to Adam and Eve is this, do you trust me? He gave him a prohibition. The question is, do you trust God? 
And in that prohibition, and in that moment, in that decision, was an embodiment of the essence of all biblical commandments. Do we trust the character of God? Do we believe He knows us? Do we believe He intends good for us? All of His laws are expression of His love for us. You know how I know that? Because I'm a parent, and I realized when I started making rules, oh my goodness, all my rules are, the, are some of the supreme expressions of my love for my children. If you don't like the idea of law, that's really naive, and the second you become a parent, you're like, oh yeah, rules. It's totally how you love kids. None of you are going to parent the way you think when you're thinking, like, oh, no, 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 rules, that's oppressive, I don't do that. Yeah, no. Parenting's going to turn you back on that. <laughs> but here's the thing. Young children can't understand the reason for all of their parents' rules, so you imply your, you, you, you implore your child to not touch the socket in the wall, not by explaining to them electricity, but by saying, trust me. You say, trust the character of your father and his love. You don't explain the command. It's a relational transaction. It's about what they think of you. They believe you love them and want what's best for them. And what the text tells us is Adam and Eve wanted to become like God. And they did in this sense. that They set themselves up as God. To defy God's law is to say, I know better. I don't trust His goodness or His awareness. So they actually set themselves up as God as the arbiters of what is good and right and wise as well as what's evil and wrong and foolish. I don't, I mean like, I don't think we have to spend much time arguing like we're not really good at those. Just scroll through your Twitter feed, scroll through the news today. As a human race, we're not doing a great job as discerning what's good and what's bad. At that moment in their relationship with God, what happened was God ceased to be their center. They ceased to trust Him. Do relationships work when you don't trust each other? No. So things broke between God and man. And when they chose to no longer trust God, they chose to no longer trust His goodness and love, and we were made to find our meaning and our security and our delight and our satisfaction in His love for for us. And separated from that, we've been trying every possible way since then to find meaning and security and delight and satisfaction. And we are so desperate that we will try anything and everything to do it. And the two chief sins that actually Israel is rebuked for over and over again in the Old Testament prophets is idolatry, that is, placing their identity and their security and their delight and their satisfaction in other things besides God. And the other sin is mistreatment of others. Those things are not unrelated. Because idolatry is taking to the center of your heart something to give you meaning and direction and value and purpose other than God. And any time we take anything, even good things, in fact, it's almost always good things, we take good things and put them in that place to be our center and our satisfaction and our delight and our hope. If you take the approval of man, that's a good thing for people to like you. But if you take money, if you take success, if you take pleasure, if you take impact, if you take sex, if you take work, all good things. And you put that in the center as your guiding principle, your hope, your life, and your security and satisfaction, it will always end up mistreatment of it in the mistreatment of others because those things become what we serve instead of tools for our service to God and neighbor 
when your sinner is no longer God and his love for you, what happens is dysfunction breaks out in all of our other relationships. When the central life-giving relationship is broken, then life and flourishing in all of the secondary relationships are broken. One of the ways Jesus is described in the New Testament is as a head and his people as his body. What happens when you're not vibrantly connected to the head is the parts of the body can no longer relate to each other in a functional way. So Genesis 3 is saying work and us, that relationship, it's broken. So it means when the writer's saying it bear, the ground now bears thorns and thistles. Sometimes you're going to get food, sometimes you get thorns and thistles. It's going to be burdensome toil. It's not always going to be pleasant. It's not always going to work. And the reason why is because our relationship with the one who loves us and gives us life and light and purpose in all things is broken. And it's not going to be until we tend to that relationship with God that we begin to recover a healthy relationship with work. And that's what we're going to talk about more next week, how God restores our relationship with work. But I'll close with this. Just look to John 3.16, the easiest verse of the Bible that everybody knows. God so loved the world that he gave you, that he gave his only son so that you or whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Beginning to heal in our relationship with work seeing that you're at the center of God's heart. The, the place where I idolize work, the time of the week that I idolize the work the most is tonight, Tuesday nights. Tuesday is really stressful for me. I think about this lesson. I work on it all day. Um, there's a lot of panic all day as I prepare the lesson. And the reason why is because I want this moment to justify me. Um, I want it to save me. I want it to validate me. And it can't. But there are a lot of Tuesday nights where I get a little mini sermon on the way home. As that what I'll do is I'm going to drive home and I'm going to replay this, all of this. You're like, that's pathetic. I know, right? <laughs> I dropped a trailer, so I've done worse. But <laughs> I'm going to replay this moment. I'm going to go over my strong moments. I'm going to remember the times I misspoke. I'm going to grade myself. I'm going to feel more or less valuable according to what I think is successful. And many times, Elizabeth will end up saving me in those moments by her love that supersedes and is not dependent on my performance. She doesn't value me according to how well I do tonight. and She will make that abundantly clear when I begin to devalue myself according to how well I did tonight. And that saves me from the death of worshiping work. It prepares me to go back to work with a proper perspective. But her love is also really just a shadow of Jesus' love. So begin to have a healthy relationship with work. We've got to fix our eyes not on future potential success, that threshold, money, hope that it's going to eliminate our self-loathing, fulfill all our passions, acquire personal prestige or nice things, but rather fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How for his joy, because of his joy over you, because he values you so deeply, he went to the cross. That's why it's always important to remember what Michael Scott said in the Christmas episode of the first season of The Office. That's funny, but this quote is brilliant. Presents are the best way to show someone how much you care because it's a tangible thing that you can point to and say, hey man, I love you this many dollars worth. (laughs) That's funny and cheesy. The cross is how many dollars worth Jesus loves you. 
It is a tangible thing that you can point to and say, this is how much He loves me. When that begins to sink into the center of your heart, that's the beginning of a healthy relationship with work again. Let's pray.